Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to be speaking with Jim. Jim comes with a vast array of experience from both the enterprise level down to early stage startups, uh, all in the cybersecurity realm. So he's going to be speaking with us today about the importance of having your first clients provide you feedback, not just to have the first clients, but to actually get feedback from them, how to do it and why it's important. We're then going to speak about how to work with having an uh, overseas uh, team. So if your sales team is in America and your R&D is in Europe, how to get them to communicate together so that uh, your product can grow. Then we're going to be talking about the different kinds of salespeople you, you can experience, like from the order taker to the consultant, and what you need as an early stage startup and how to find that during the interview process. Before we jump into the episode with Jim, I wanted to talk to you about a new thing we're doing at uh, Startup Sales. Uh, besides the mastermind groups for founders and uh, salespeople, we're also putting on sales training. This is more of a, a, of a workshop type process. So instead of a, a one-time training, you're going to get every week, one hour, two hour, three hours, however much you need to work on your sales processes, to work on your sales skills or your go-to-market strategy, uh, anything that your company kind of needs to get up and running. So to find out more information about these training sessions, you could go to startupsales.io backslash training at startupsales.io backslash training. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Jim. It's going to be a fantastic episode with lots of insights. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Great, Jim. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Guys. So can you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background before we jump into the first question? Sure. I won't say I'm a serial entrepreneur, but I have been in five startups. Uh, technical background, aerospace engineering degree, did real work, as in uh, engineering work for the first six years, and then I went into marketing and sales, been in marketing and sales now for 30-odd years. Um, mostly, I'm completely in technology, primarily manufacturing and automation-related technologies. Uh, cybersecurity became part of my background about 13 years ago when I went to work for a database security company. And the last 10 years have been in industrial cybersecurity, which is a unique sort of a space in that uh, corporate security enterprise, all of the network monitoring stuff has been on the IT and the corporate you know, home office side for a long time. The plants and the factories uh, where people actually produce goods, make cars, process chemicals, all that has been fairly ignored. Uh, in the early days, it was honestly like trying to sell insurance to a 30-year smoker. But now cyber is a bad trend that's only getting worse. It's getting real attention from boards. There's measurable financial impact on companies. They have to declare a meaningful you know, financial impact. Companies like Merck and Maersk and Honda and Nissan and uh, Mondelez down in Australia. So anyway, the point is that cybersecurity industrial side is, is very vibrant. And I've been doing that uh, as the head of North America for CyberX Labs since uh, the beginning of 2016. Wow, nice. So that, that kind of raises the question, uh, how is it to, to sell in a world where cybersecurity, where 
many people like to fly under the radar. Well, they do. Uh, and they won't necessarily tell you their issues. They won't necessarily reveal their exploits. In the electric utility industry, for example, there's a threat and information sharing uh, group, uh, Lockheed Martin, my alma mater, that acquired this company called Industrial Defender I've been part of. Lockheed uh, runs uh, threat and information sharing, but some of it's classified. Some of it's what you know, government uh, entities call a SCIF, you know, Secure Information uh, Center, that uh, can't be penetrated. So, you know, under a closed setting, companies will sometimes exchange threat information. But a lot of the time, you're dealing commercially, and, and uh, companies know they need something, and they they will write an RFP. Sometimes they'll look for some advice on what should be in it, but they won't necessarily tell you about the specific events they've had. They'll tell you about the kind of needs that they have and the aspects that they want to monitor for. So you can, it's kind of like uh, diagnosing a car, maybe on the on the symptoms as opposed to exactly, you know, what caused a flat tire. That would be a bad example, but you know what I mean? It's it, You can deal with what they're trying to accomplish, like fix the tire in ways that, that address the need, but without necessarily just dis- disclosing that they were trespassing, driving through broken glass when the, when the tire went flat. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good analogy. Is, has this slowed down the sales process because of this lack of uh, information? Not the lack of information. Uh, it's really the thing that slowed the sales process down. This is, a, you know, the industrial cyber market. Don't count the time at Industrial Defender where we were the pioneers and it was one company in the space and no venture capital and we were privately held. You now have a five-year-old market and the company with CyberX uh, began this market in a lot of ways. Uh, first one to fund it, uh, first one to ship product and so on. But nonetheless, even though uh, it's a more of a real market with uh, you know customer RFPs and uh, boards even paying attention to this because of the material financial statements they have to make because of cyber now, um, you still uh, have to find the ones that are ready because it's like the first light bulb in a dark room. You shine a light bulb into a, you know, the area of cybersecurity for companies because cyber in general has got to be a really tough issue. A lot of times they realize that they've got to deal with 15 other things before they get to the operational side. You know, endpoint, data loss prevention, uh, backup and recovery, all the basic you know, hygiene on the cyber side for the industrial. You have to, the sales challenge is to find the one company in 10 or 15 that's ready to do something about it now within a reasonable time frame. Everybody wants to get educated. So our challenge is to spend a little bit of time with people and say, we'll check back in 90 days or 180 days when you might have more of an active project. So it's really because it's an early market, you have to figure out, you know, who's who's kicking tires and who's ready to buy. So who's your sell? Who's the persona that you're speaking with? Uh, we started the CISO. Um, some of the companies in our industrial cyber market are aiming at industrial partnerships and focusing is not supposed to be a commercial for my company, but the the thing that we recognize is that security is ultimately owned on the corporate side. The CISO is the ultimate owner in a producing company as opposed to a bank or whatnot. Uh, the cyber budgeting comes from maybe the pilot at the corporation, but then the rollouts have to occur in the plants, and every plant's a PL. Every producing site is a PL. That manager is mentioned is measured, that manager director of VP is measured on what he returns to the corporation. So you're competing when they want to buy cybersecurity protection or monitoring against the landscaping budget or the capital improvement you need to make, you know, in the, in the plant or the overall automation upgrade, things like that. So, um, but the, uh, the, the target audience is the uh, chief information security officer and the directors. And sometimes we find what we call a unicorn, which is somebody on the operational side who has control responsibility, like producing cars or paint or whatever, who also knows cyber. That's a unicorn. Uh, but by and large, we're selling to the corporate side and then you have to get the buy-in of the people operationally. So you have to kind of really re-educate them or educate them every time. Well, yes and no. I mean, that's the point is I want to find the ones that are ready to buy and have to realize they need to do something. You're doing some education. You're right in that the education comes to the plants. 
when the yeah. plan manager says, why do I need to spend the money here? I'm, I'm uh, you know, trying to maximize ret my return. Then you have to do it. Now, what's changing is that at least, as I said before, cyber is a bad trend that's only getting worse. It's being recognized as something that's important. Boards have cyber committees, and you also have situations where um, it's now being monitored and measured much more you know, thoroughly as opposed to discretionally. So it's a, it becomes a real, uh, a real process. But even some of our largest global customers, the chief proponent from corporate, say, manufacturing technology head, has got to go plant to plant and say, oh, by the way, the board thinks this is important. You know, when can you when can you sign up? Interesting. So, how can a let's let's go back to when you joined CyberX Labs? Um, not just that company, but any comp any earlier stage startup mm -hmm. that it wants to start to breach this market. Where do they start? How do they start to build these connections and and educate the mar their market? Are you talking cyber particularly, or in general for young young companies? In cyber, particular. Okay. All right. Again, this is my fifth startup, so I've done it in a variety of uh, variety of scenarios. Um, I think if it, there are a lot of cybersecurity companies uh, in our space, we have a kind of a first mover advantage of getting started five years ago. But now a lot of the IT companies are putting their their hat in the ring, saying, "Oh, we do this too." You know, we do industrial cyber. Um, for young companies, you'd want to have uh, obviously something differentiable. Uh, that would make it meaningful because it's a crowded space even already in this in this young market. There's some market leaders that are out there. Our company's privileged to be one of them. Um, but you would have to have something differentiable or new. And ideally, uh, for any given startup, it's always good to have trial customers, even if they're there on a prototype basis, not there to buy. So, you know, companies that will evaluate your product, uh, you can, for example, uh, talk to your contacts as coaches. And that's often the better, you know, soft sell or the soft approach is to not come in, to work the network that you have if you have senior people and not say I'm here to say something, but instead say, I'd like to get your coaching on how this fits. Does this match your your need? Does it where do you see this playing? If not with you, what types of peer companies or other organizations would make sense? So my my experience in, in running startups uh, has been to figure out in the beginning who's going to coach you and shape not just the product and the technology, but importantly, the message and the target audience so that you wind up with, you know, a much more uh, tangible and palpable uh, value proposition aimed at the right audience. You know, if you go back to the old crossing the chasm thing of the bowling, you know, pins, you don't want to try and, you know, get a strike every time. You want to aim for the lead pin and then work your way through. You want to work with areas that are, are relevant, companies that, that are ready to buy and not try and be all things to all people. Sometimes in startups, and I've been, I've seen this experience personally, is the founders want to spray, you know, spray everywhere and, and try and touch <laughs> and see where it sticks. And on one level, you want to do a little bit of that, but that should not be the major focus. You should have some sense of what you're about and where it's going to go and have a core market. And maybe 20% of what you do is also trying some new things. But my, my suggestion would be, based on experience, the way to get traction is to really go for that lead pin, knock it over, and then move to adjacent sectors and, and expand and besides once you decide uh where you're going to sell and how you're going to sell and, and who you're going to sell to you have a much better chance at higher returns if you've got referenceable accounts and it's hard for somebody in the oil and gas business to you know talk to somebody in the banking business i'm, I'm exaggerating but you know this unless you've got an industry connection it's like well that's interesting for them but not to me absolutely these these coaches uh or coaches uh, are, do you go and get them to, to pay first? No, like, no. What I'm saying you is, give it, them like a disc of heavily discount. 
Well, when companies get around to buy, you would discount. You make some very attractive offers to get them to, to, to be able to say that they're legitimate customers. But in the very early stages, when you're attempting to shape your message and your product and to make your product decisions and what's going to be important, that's all complimentary coaching. You're really just using your network as coaches. And it's a little flattering. I mean, if you're not overly you know, wearing out your welcome and asking for too much time and attention, right? Uh, just to, to talk with someone to say, you know, I've, I've known you for a while. I've got a lot of regard for your experience and your opinion. What do you think about this? And to kind of literally take it as a, here's what we're attempting to do. Here's what we think it's going to make sense to. And here's the value proposition we see it. And here's how we think we're going to price it. You can get a lot of market data. So I think in the, in the retail business or the consumer business, they do focus groups. You know, and that's kind of a blind test where you'll show you something, don't tell you what it is. I mean, that's the extreme case of consumer marketing because there you're really trying to stand out. Hopefully an entrepreneur would have something different, different enough and, and unique enough to where you don't have to just put it out there and hope it's a message that sticks. It's more about the content, the audience and pricing and that sort of thing. So use your, use your, your network and your board and advisors that you have, you know, have that be the network of networks have that family of, of advisors in the beginning, just give you some feedback on what this is and what it's done. Now, any entrepreneur, obviously, that's gotten funding, has pitched to VCs or seed investors or angels or whatever they may have to get the company started, and there's some of that. Uh, and those people will all be experienced. They wouldn't be in that role if they didn't have hands-on experience, typically. Uh, but real customer feedback to come back to those investors, by the way, and say, oh, here's how we validated what we're selling and who we're selling it to and how we're packaging it and how we're describing it and promoting it and how we're pricing it. All of that is hugely valuable, and and uh, for me, I'd rather you know get that as a you know complimentary coaching session than to ask somebody to you know twist around to buy something and then they give me some feedback about how it worked. Right? Mm-hmm. So in the early early stages, and maybe while you're just barely getting a start in product development, so I think it's all a function of where you are in the in the evolution, and, and some of the people in your audience will be much further down the road than that. But in the beginning, it's about figuring out what have I got that's relevant, and how does it you know how does it play? Okay. Now, most most companies with these kind of uh, newer technology uh, security uh, offerings are going to be earlier stage startups, uh, as it's kind of a new forming industry. Uh, how do you deal with, or is it even a problem going and approaching these uh, Fortune one hundred companies or these major corporations uh, when you're such a young company? Well, that that's it. Again, we're talking about cybersecurity for the industrial side of the house as being new. Obviously, cyber on the corporate side has been around a long time. But yeah, for this, and and, for, and I think it's it's generally applicable to any uh, product or service in a lot of ways that you would have that you think has got a market appeal, however you define that. And the example we're describing here is what I do in industrial cyber. But um, yeah, you it depends on the network. Uh, it's going to be depending. You know, Fortune 100 CISOs are 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 very hard to, to reach. You might bump into them at a conference, you know, when they're speaking, but generally getting access to stuff. So unless you've got a network that'll get you there, aim a little lower. You could start with mid-market companies, right? And then and work your way up. But it, I think it's just a matter of doing the old uh, uh, spheres of influence analysis about who is on our team of, of you know, employees and investors and advisors, and what do those networks look like in the target markets that we think are relevant. And then it's just a question of, making those contacts and, and buying them lunch or meeting for coffee or, or coming in and pitching. Or, I mean, if you get an opportunity to pitch to a group, if they have that kind of cycle available, great. But most of the time it's, you know, who do we know that we can get some access to? And then, you know, you could say, uh, do I have your permission to mention your company, even if I don't mention you personally, as I do additional outreach 
say, so I can say, you know, if you go into Shell, I was in at Chevron and we spoke to a director that is responsible for XYZ. And so, I mean, you, you can use classic networking techniques to, to expand the sphere of influence, but it's a question of, of getting access and, and access is probably one of the most you know, precious commodities. So it, 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 I think that bodes actually on a tangential topic, uh, points to how you select your, not just your board, your board's going to be who invests in you, but in particular, who, how do you select your advisors that have got enough industry contacts that'll help you make, become larger than life? Because as a young company, and I've been in both sides of this, sometimes you've got easy access to the top and sometimes you don't. It's much easier when you've got key influencers on your team of investors and advisors on their networks that would let you uh, have the ability to speak to you know, people that are of high interest. It's interesting, and it is a good transition. How how can I know if a investor has these connections? Besides, like asking, like, "Hey, do you have connections in this industry?" They could say yes, but they could be very weak connections. They could, yeah. And again, this is a when starting a company. I've uh, I've been with a number of entrepreneurs over the years, and the good ones are salespeople, at least on one level, right? Because they're obviously pitching their idea and their company and their their knowledge and the differentiation, but you know, selling can also be a case of uh, interviewing a little bit uh, and saying, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in taking you on as an advisor, but I'd like to know specifically what are the titles and companies that you, of people you know, not necessarily the names, not to give that away, but, you know, if you're going to bring somebody in as an advisor, if, if, again, it's all about the stage, right? In the very, very early stage, you're happy to have uh, your uncle, you know, uh, help you out, right? <laughs> um, that's an old joke about, uh, you didn't hear it from me, but my uncle would say, um, but uh, I think, but as, as you move along and as you start to get some seed money and you've got an idea and now you want to see if the idea sticks to the wall, it's, it's a question of, you know, asking advisors, you know, how can you help? I, I don't want to waste your time or ours. So it becomes part of that, that, that uh, let's go dating uh, discussion. That doesn't make sense for both of us. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's change subjects a little bit. Um, and I don't mean to talk more about your current company, but your current company is uh, overseas and you're in America. How is it to work with a team uh, that's overseas? And does that, first let's answer that first question. How is it to work with a team that's overseas? Uh, I've done it a bunch of times and it's not difficult at all. Um, one of the things that our founders here at Cyberx did, which was very important, is that they maybe they drew straws or flipped coins? I'm not sure. I'm joking. They, the CEO, <laughs> there are two co-founders, the CTO and the CEO. The CEO moved his family here when he and I started North America, and so he established the U.S. as a headquarters, and we've built out North America for all the primary functions. And so, because again, it's a function of where the target market is. You know, the U.S. is North American. America is really <clears throat> is is a larger overall opportunity, even if Europe got a head start, which we did over time and so and then there are some advantages to saying you're a u.s headquartered company and so all of the key functions at cyberx you know uh, sales inside sales and sales development reps uh, pre-sales uh, post-sales customer success marketing product management uh, demand gen um, operations business development uh, product management uh, finance you know all of these functions are all u.s based what remains in europe is the technology side of the business, which is research and development. We have two distinct teams doing different things there. But so yeah. uh, the European base is kind of the, the brain trust, if you will, but it's Americanized uh, approach with American people and, you know, 
U.S. headquarters. So that that helps. Now, the second half of your question was, what's it like to work with with you know a European or uh, you know, European based organization? Frankly, the the burden has been primarily on them. I've been in companies where you're dealing with Asia Pacific and so on, and, and your hours get kind of weird trying to find suitable times to overlap. And in some of the customer pursuits, we had one in Australia that met for some odd night, you know, kind of one a.m. calls and so on. But in general, the for what I've my experience has been for European organizations that have a U.S. focus, the time shifts for them more than it does for the U.S. people. So it hasn't been that difficult. Maybe you're up for an early call here and there, but if the customer, if the if the company really is focused on on success in, in North America, and you have all these functions that I described that are become part of North America, then really it's it's later nights for them uh, yeah. than, than early days for us. All right. Now the R and D team is overseas and it's we we know that it's so vital for for an early stage company to be very connected with sales to be able to hear what the clients are saying and what the client's perspective is how does that work having the R&D team be so far away well uh, not everybody in R&D needs to talk to customers first of all right but the product management people the uh, uh, product roadmap people uh, there's an inbound uh, uh, program manager type of person that's dealing directly with customer requests. I think attitudinally it starts, Adam, with the aspect, it, does your product or service benefit from direct customer you know, feedback and guidance? You know, Apple came up with uh, quite a few innovations on their own and basically didn't need to talk to customers because they, they felt most you know, confident enough that the design of the iPhone, for example, or even the iPod, was going to resonate and have its own face and create and create new markets, which they did. That's that's rare, obviously. So uh, the thing of it is to have some part of the function in Europe uh, be customer connected. Um, you know, one of the things that young companies, if they're responsive, uh, find is that most of your product innovation comes from customer ideas. If you if you make that a welcome addition, and so you know, it won't it wouldn't be surprising to have. 70, 80, 90% of your product roadmap be customer ideas um, and customers react very positively to the idea that uh, their input is valued and that you're going to treat them as a design partner, not just a customer. Um, And one of the things we've done at our company is to not just say yes and put it on the roadmap, but come back with a schedule. Right. Here's when you're going to see it. You're going to see it, you know, roughly, you know, ideally uh, in a given month, but certainly in a given quarter and then meet those commitments. Uh, so that's that's a very important thing is to be very customer facing and, and acknowledge the uh, their value and input to you as as you grow together. Uh, on kind of a uh, Machiavellian isn't quite right, but on, on another level, you know, if companies big companies take a chance and, and it is in a way, you know, going with a startup, they're going to want to see you succeed. They don't want to have to then switch technology. If they select you for your advantages today. They're going to want to make sure you're successful longer term, so they're going to cooperate and support you and and be engaged. So that's the ideal, you know, symbiotic relationship: is you have customers that engage with you in ways that are meaningful both ways. And uh, so the, the the response part, I mean, a lot of it has to do with having a U.S. presence and having the knowledge that that there are local people that they can get on reasonable time zones. But the other thing that that uh, companies do that's very effective is to establish a customer success function, which is not, is not, so therefore your sales aren't drive-bys, you know, here you go, good luck, you know, <laughs> see you later, thank you. Yeah. Uh, that truly, you know, follow, and in cyber, by the way, it's an evergreen relationship. You can buy a lot of applications, like in the industrial space, there's something called an HMI, 
human machine interface. I'm old enough to know the days it was called a man machine interface, but that got general neutralized. <laughs> um, but an, an HMI product is something that will have a function. Like for example, if you picture a you know a shampoo operation where chemicals are being added and mixed and heated and blended and bottled up and labeled and all that, that's an automation process. It's going to run for some number of years before you have to do any updates, right? And especially if the FDA is involved, it's got to be approved for hygienic, you know, and, and human use or consumption in the case of drugs. So the point is that in, in a lot of products that you sell in the automation world, it's a set it and, and we'll see in a few years. And maybe there's some patches and upgrades you go through, but that's minor. It's not, cyber is evergreen in that the threats are always increasing. And you can't let a cyber environment decline and, and degrade. It'd be like not installing antivirus updates on your personal computer, right? It just wouldn't make sense. <clears throat> so in our market, uh, staying close to those customers and, and they knowing that they need to stay current with you. And oh, by the way, the benefit is that they can enjoy uh, the results or the, the uh, benefit of their input for product you know, evolution is, is a you know, very nice symbiotic back and forth. All right. You, you said uh, in the middle of that answer, though, that it's very important to have a U.S. presence. Now, I hear a lot of mixed things about this. I actually feel okay. that it's not as important. All right, interested in that. Uh, being, being over being overseas and running a team, I I've been able to close Fortune 100 contracts, uh, government contracts, all over the phone. Why do you see it as important? Well, it depends on the market, right? And it depends on on the need that you fill. Obviously, um, for us, it's, it was important because it's an early stage market. It may be interesting. Are the are the, the examples you're describing? startup type uh, offerings you know new technologies new products where you didn't need to be local some yes some no okay i mean then you're really good on the phone if, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if they were startups congratulations um i think one of the things that's different about the industrial market it makes it very important uh, in our slice of the cyberspace is that industrial control systems are really uh, set and forget from the, not from the cyber point of view, but from the automation point of view. We're going to set up a production line to make shampoo and it's going to run for the next four, five, six, eight years, maybe longer if you're lucky on the brand without a whole lot of changes. And it's don't touch my stuff. You know, the automation managers, the plant managers, they're, they get measured. So in an oil and gas refinery, for example, when a plant manager gets up in the morning, there's only two things he asks himself. What were my numbers last night? And did anybody get hurt or killed? End of story. Right? It's that if it's for life safety concerns. And but production is a lot like that. It's very critical to make sure things move as expected. You've got very little downtime. Outages are scheduled. You know, uh, even if you're only running two shifts a day, you don't want to be experimenting with upgrades of things overnight because you may not come back up tomorrow, right? Or even if it's one shift a day. So, outages and upgrades and maintenance uh, are are set on a a time frame, maybe a couple of days a quarter, sometimes less than that, a couple of days, you know, twice a year, unless you're doing an overall automation, you know, retro retrofit. But generally speaking, the the installations and the updates that you do, so it, it's very much a leave it alone, don't disrupt. Um, and part of the, the the assurance that they need is that they can reach people on local time zones and that they can, uh, you know. Uh, keep the system healthy enough, not 100%, by the way. Sometimes companies will accept a cyber risk and keep operating because the, the impact that they project would happen of a cyber incident versus the lost, down, you know, lost production mm -hmm. and other things that they have uh, could be worse. So, I mean, they often accept risk and run with it. So, 
it's it's really a function of of uh, you know being close. And then where I was going with this is that in a new market, this is a five year old space. The face to face makes a big difference because the reluctance that people would have of don't touch my stuff, you're not going to be as effective over the phone on that type of a you know potential and they say a potential impact on how they make their money on their production. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So let's talk about salespeople, uh, building a building a team uh, for cyber. What kind of skill sets does some does a salesperson need? to work in cyber versus regular technology? Um, There's oh, thank you. I mean, there's overlaps between the skills that you want. I think uh, I've I've seen salespeople that are all business, uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way per se, but they operate at a benefit and cost and, you know, maybe an ROI, you know, background. But when it comes to technology, uh, you have to go toe-to-toe with whoever the proponent was of the current, you know, implementation. And then so if you're coming in to, to displace somebody, somebody in that company, unless they're really unhappy with that supplier, they, they made a career move by making that recommendation. So you're trying to overcome some resistance that somebody has personally to the decision that was made that they convinced of bringing it. Now, sometimes things don't work. A fortuitous situation is that the, the product's not working out. It's not by the value. They had too many, you know, implementation issues, whatever it happens to be. And that becomes a little easier, you know, dissection. But the uh, aspect of, uh, you know, bringing salespeople in that can be technical enough so they can explain without having to look over at the solutions engineer every, every you know, two minutes for why this is important or why it's better. I think the attributes to be credible are to be able to have enough of an appreciation of the technology to describe, not in detail how it works, but how it works in general and in particular how it is better than the competition and how it's going to solve their problems. And to do that at multiple levels, I think one of the one of the things about younger salespeople is they won't necessarily have the comfort to speak above the engineers or the, or the technocrats in an organization. And the, the ideal, I mean, you know, for us, we've invested in, in senior people that have had 15 plus years experience. So they're not brand new. We have an inside team that's doing the sales development work, the emails and the outbound you know, calls and all that, that, that helps you know, get meetings. But when it comes to really customer interactions, that's about incredible at whatever level in the organization because in industrial cyber because it's such a new space it is a very it's a, it's a wild west in terms of the competitors but it's also a undefined sales model in that you know there's going to be a lot of people involved you have the, the corporate sponsor in it or networking you know network security but then you have to really convince the production people so having somebody who's versatile who can be conversant across organizations and can be conversant not just at the technical level but up to the CISO and potentially CIO in the organization. It takes experience to be able to be that at breath. And when I interview uh, salespeople, I ask them to tell me, well, I have several questions. And one of them is, tell me about yourself. And I don't mean that as a, you know, a dating app. I mean, if you had a, <laughs> if you had a uh, uh, business, the way I put it is, if you have a business associate or a customer describe you, Adam, what would they say about you? You know, are you a big picture guy? Are you detailed? What attributes would they use? And what I'm looking for are things like, I'm a hardworking, I'm willing to work to sweat the details, I'm in a startup in particular. I'm willing to wear multiple hats, I'm willing to, to jump in and get it done. I'm gonna be tireless in the pursuit of it until it's done because to me, sales is professional paranoia, right? And you don't really know it's done until it's done and what could go wrong, so seeing around until the corner. Until the commission checks in my bank. Pretty much, yeah, <laughs> cashed, yeah, exactly right, because they come and roll it back. Um, so all of, all of the aspects of, of you know, what kind of person are you? Are you antsy to get things done? Are you a farmer, right? Hunters will have a, a distinct 
attribute about them. And then I also, so I'll tell them, when I interview people, I ask them to describe themselves, not only, but also to give me examples of complex sales um, campaigns that they've successfully led that were complex across the organization. We have multiple constituents that you had to literally herd the cats in ways that, that are meaningful to get, get the job done. So for, for us in an early stage market where it's not quite clear who the actual budget holder is sometimes, whether the corporate's going to sponsor it or not, and who's going to feel like they might have an investment in doing it in-house. Sometimes the competition is do nothing. We'll do it ourselves. So you have to have people that are versatile, and it can't just simply be what I would think of as catalog salespeople. Here's my specs. Here's my price. Here's my availability. You know, this is obviously you know, less or better than what you have, right? <clears throat> that kind of selling doesn't work in early stage. I think in particular, startups have got to be uh, sold through people that are versatile and flexible and can see around the corner and are tireless. Uh, and you want to look for attributes and examples. Uh, and of course, reference check this too um, for how they've done this. And when I ask for reference checks, by the way, <clears throat> I ask for six, I may not call them all, but two customers, two peers, and two bosses. A lot of times people just call bosses. I like to know what peers think about them and what customers say about them. Do they have customers they can bring up you know, that are willing to talk about them. So, I mean, all of that are indicators, but, I, but the kind of salespeople that you need are need to be versatile and uh, tireless uh, and creative and focused and, you know, have some experience in dealing with the unknowns. That's uh, it's really interesting that you ask for customers' uh, references. It's the first I've heard of that. And mm. are people reluctant to give that to you? Or are they happy to give that to you? Well, it tells you something about that. Right. Yeah. For now, again, if you're dealing with people that have been working for three, four, five years, they may not have very many that are that way. But if you, if you really are aiming for seasoned people that have 15, 20 years experience, that's kind of the sweet spot, I think, a lot of times. Because if they're they've moved up beyond that, they're in management, you won't be able to afford them. Or you don't have that kind of role for them. <clears throat> or uh, if people that don't have less experience in that won't have enough of the variety of talents that I just described. But the customer thing is important because the good Salespeople, the senior people, I was going to say the good guys, but that wouldn't include the ladies. The, the senior salespeople will have customers that follow them. And they'll, they'll, they'll tell you that. They'll be proud to tell you. You know, I've been in, in these industries, and as much as they are different, you know, technologies, they're, they're sort of related, and I can go back to the same customers again and again and again. That's, that says something. That says something. So you have to strike a balance. You want a hunter, but you don't want a, a drive-by, you know, run-and-gun only kind of person, because that's not good long-term, especially in, in North America. Uh, and in particular, because relationships are, are not the only thing, but it's an important part about can I depend on this guy and his, his guy or gal and his company to take care of me. There's an old saying about um, loyalty, customer loyalty is that, you know, it's one thing to have customer loyalty buy again and again, but customers are even more loyal if something goes wrong and you solve it satisfactorily and promptly, they'll be more loyal than if nothing bad ever happened. And this studies exactly. on that. So. Yeah, I've had a I've had a lot of clients that every time I leave a company, okay, where are you going next? Mm. What 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 are you selling? <laughs> like they they, they ask for it, and it's mm -hmm. it's really nice. Some of them have actually even helped me try to get a job at their company. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, really really says a lot. All right, um, fifteen years experience. So that's uh, that's. That's a lot of experience. I, I mean, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't produce that 15 years experience uh, for you. <laughs> but uh, to each his own. I mean, I, again, it depends on 
on the market and the situation and are you selling you know kind of a catalog product that just needs to be faster quicker you know high jumps higher uh, or are you trying to break into a, a new space and our and maybe our space is a little a little unique that way because it is newly being formed and uh, it has a, there's a lot of conflicting priorities as i described the operations heads that have the PL responsibility you're competing against the landscaping budget or whatever else they might spend to improve the site um so you need people that that can be senior enough to not run out of gas or run out of good you know reasons to engage uh at the first pushback or objection so you so experience just brings that i mean there's a there's a confidence and a comfort that comes from having dealt with all types of diversity um there was a, a sales trainer i hired many years ago 15 years ago to run my sales meeting to come in as a guest on my sales meeting um and this is not a plug for his book uh, but the guy's name is Art Mattel, so i should I should give credit to the phrase, but he literally had this room, 150 people that I had together. Repeat after me, he said, rejection turns me on. And he made <laughs> <laughs> say it again and again and again. But but there, that's a bit of an extreme, but they have to, what I'm getting at is the experience has got to be such that you have dealt with adversity, dealt with rejection, dealt with, you know, uh, objections uh, successfully to know, you know, how best to counter it and still have the relationship be successful and still have people want to deal with you again. Um, and, 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 you know, not to be, you know, uh, too abrasive about it. Absolutely. Uh, so does that 15 years of experience, it could be any kind of experience as long as it's got, has those checks, those boxes, uh, per se. It, it depends. Uh, I would say no, uh, in my space. Uh, okay. I, you know, anytime I've, I've hired salespeople and I've been, uh, heading up sales organizations since the 80s. Um, for, for markets that are young, uh, you want people that have sold successfully, not just worked professionally and had, had company benefits. I make the extreme example. You, you want them to, you want to have people that have been selling. So my 15 years is enterprise sales or software or cybersecurity or networking technology or some form of, of technology I can relate to. Then of course, I'm looking at whether people are a quick study are they interested in new things? Are they going to devote themselves to, to learning? Are they going to be, you know, voracious readers and want to come up? So you can kind of get a sense about uh, people's style. You, you don't want the person in an early stage company, if you're asking them to be a hunter, now being, a, you know, if, you had, if you're fortunate enough to have enough clients where you had some farmers that would just take care of and be responsive to, to customers, that's a different mindset. They can go home Friday at five o'clock. But the, but the startup salesperson needs to be antsy enough to, uh, always be thinking about what else going to be doing here to make sure this happens before competition comes. Somebody who thinks along the lines that if they're not talking to me, they're probably talking to a competitor. What event can, seriously, and what event can I do uh, to, to re, to get, to re-engage, to make sure they're thinking of us? Um, you know, what, what creative approaches can I take? Uh, we've had situations where, you know, if, if customer's not sure about which way to go and they're leaning to somebody else, say, try us both. You know, so it's beyond the POC when you actually get to production. Uh, yeah. Know, Try to put us both in place, side by side, in a real-world environment, and then you can decide more, more favorably for a full rollout. So, yeah, you want the salespeople that are that are are thinking along the "what else can I be doing here" kind of lines. So, the 15 years needs to be in a in a enterprise for us anyway, in our type of a market because you are selling to enterprise accounts. What type of uh, experience does a person have that's relevant to enterprise software, enterprise cybersecurity, enterprise network technology, whatever kind of sales? Something that's relatable, not just selling of some type, um, you know, you don't want to necessarily bring somebody in from a unrelated market or you know, insurance or 
you know, selling cybersecurity to an insurance or medical organization is one thing, but not having sold insurance itself, that's not relevant. But for, for somebody that you're looking to be uh, versatile and figure it out on the fly and not require as much coaching, you need some seniority and relevant experience, from okay. my view. Do you ever have to deal with, uh, with when you hire people with that much experience, they're stuck in their ways uh, and they're not coachable? Well, that's a, I've had that case from time to time and they wash out, frankly. Uh, okay. Because you, you, set, you need to, to be clear about what you expect. Um, that the person doesn't depend uh, on an army behind, you know, and, and one of the little yellow flags doesn't have to be a red flag on people. If they've only worked at big companies, you may want to think twice about, do they have the, the stuff that it's going to take in a startup? Cause there will not be a proposal team behind it. There will not be a commercial <laughs> desk. They're going to have to quarterback their own RFPs. They're going to have to be good enough for the product to call BS when the customer's taking you down a path that's not relevant in a conversation. They have to be able to, at least scan the technical requirements and know if this is even a fit or not and not just throw it over the wall. So yeah, you have to, you have to, to uh, find the right uh, attitude and that's important uh, for people uh, as a, just a style and an energy and, and you have to suss that out. And if, and even if a person interviews well, that's a, that's a question you've got to ask in the references. Yeah. I think uh, what you said about somebody that comes from a big company moving to a startup, I've, I've made that mistake before and, and hired people that come from big companies and they're just not made for, they're not used to it. They, it's hard. It's a very hard transition because you don't have somebody to do every task for you. Right. And all you have to do is manage the relationship. No, you have to do everything and manage the relationship. Yeah. I've been told that I'm our toughest customer in the company. I coach and bring on the inside sales team, you know, even new salespeople because I'm playing devil's advocate and, and I'm good at it. So <laughs> uh, You've got the but I, well, I do, but I also I also take a a, a technology slant at that, um, and not just you know uh, push back on the commercial side of things or the business terms. But you know I'm going to ask our team that, that bring an opportunity for them and say, well, what is it they want to do with our product? You know, I know they're interested in OT cybersecurity. That's great, but that's not like saying I'm interested in cars. It's a pretty broad market. Are you interested in a roadster? Are you interested in an SUV? Are you interested in a drag racer? You know, you, you, you have to get to the level below being over the level and unpeel the onion and, and be relevant. So my, one of my hallmarks, if I were to think about my career and what I've, I've done that has worked best, has been, been not just relevant but credible in conversations. And I enjoy being in a CIO's office and not have to look over my shoulder and ask the technical guy. You know, the answer yeah. for things. But I, I look for that in the, the salespeople. I expect them to give demos. I truly do. Now, it helps to have a very easy to use product and all that kind of thing. My best demo for CyberX is I walk in and I hand the mouse to the client. And I stand yeah. at the screen and I point and say, go here, go here. And it's, so I'm, unfortunately, we've got a very engaging, easy to use product. But, the, but my point is that I'm able to do that because I focused on what the product is and how it's important and how it can relate to this. And I look for that in the salespeople too. And we call them sales directors for a reason. We're recognizing that they have enough experience that they're not, you know, entry level people. But I look for their uh, them to have the ability to be credible and convincing, and to then, you know, uh, maneuver as need be when there's some, you know, uh, rotten tomato question that comes out of the group, or some of some of the competition's been there first, and they've primed the pump with, you know, you know, catch up, you know, catch you kinds of questions, and and be able not just to, you know, to stammer at that, but to be able to be uh, responsive and proactive. So, yeah, and know how to combat those questions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I think that's uh, one of the most important things that I find is 
is to be a true full cycle salesperson. Uh, and that means even knowing the technical stuff enough to, to carry the conversation. And if you don't know, just say, let me find out for you and get back to you. Well, at a minimum, yeah, that, yeah. that's table stakes for me. I want them to cover 85% of the questions in that first. That, that's my yeah. standard. Yeah, very much. So as a startup, uh, as an, when, uh, when you're joining an early stage startup that still is looking at, uh, at forming their go-to-market strategy, what the product market fit means for the company, how do you set sales targets in your compensation packages for the first salespeople? Well, that's a good question, actually. Um, a lot of it depends on, uh, do you have customers yet? Right? Have you sold it at all? If you're really, really early stage, then where they haven't had any customers and you really can't predict if, the, if, the, if it's going to stick to the wall, then you have to set metrics that are uh, less about bookings and more about the right behaviors. So ideally, it's the amount of tangible, you know, real pipeline you create. Because when I hire a new salesperson, <clears throat> they have a sales quota. It's reduced for the first year um, because in the first, you know, three to six months, I'm looking at them to build pipeline and be able to get the message and the story down to where they're identifying customer need. And then we use the band, you know, budget authority need timeline. There's a lot of different you know, uh, metrics that you can use to establish whether an opportunity is real. <clears throat> but we, we scrutinize it closely to make sure that they're not just have happy years or customers is feeding something. That's why they call me the toughest customers. Cause I'm, I'm asking the questions about well, what are they going to use this for? What is it they're actually want to protect? I know they're interested, but what are they going to do with it? How would they be able to create a budget to, to spend money on this? If it's not clear to you what they really need it for these kinds of things. But in the beginning, <clears throat> the targets are about a certain amount of pipeline. Um, and then uh, over time, you know, depending on the, if you, if you're fortunate enough to have, a big enough uh, inside sales team to make the calls and, and the emails, then, you know, building on uh, that, you have at least, and I recommend that, by the way, for early stage companies is to invest in an inside sales rep uh, structure. Ideally, one for one, match up the sales director with an inside person so that, because the salesperson, if they're doing the right things, they're traveling and they're getting around, they're not going to be able to, to really have that cadence of outbound calls and emails unless they stay home for a day and just do that sort of thing, but then they miss, they miss the follow-up. So, I think the Tiger, Tiger team of uh, inside sales, you know, sales development rep and an outside sales director works well. But the targets, if you have customers, then you set a reasonable target. And you can ask, you know, ask industry peers. Typically, one to one and a half million is the right range for a annual quota, you know, annualized, depending on what time they start during the year. In a new company that has customers, you know, it's got, you know, 20 customers at least around the world uh, where you can have some stories to tell. You can have some references to to build on and you're not trying to convince the first you know, the first time first time buyer uh, but if it's not it's if it's really early stage i say you can measure behaviors you can see about the volume of calls and mails that they're making you can see about how the pipeline builds uh, you can watch them uh, engage you know are they are they thinking of ways to meet the target audience are they i mean you may not have a big marketing department or maybe have a marketing department one at a startup so is the salesperson coming to you and saying as a ceo or the marketing person that, alongside uh, we need to go to this this event and this local you know group and this uh, technical forum. We need to go here or there, whatever. Uh, if they're coming up with ideas to generate leads, then you can see you got the right stuff. So the targets can be activity based. If you haven't got customer traction, uh, or if you've got customer traction, then you can have it about pipeline that's tangible because you have a message you can, you can use, and then sales will fall. But a hundred. You know, hundred. And again, it depends on the ASP. You know, if, if the average selling price is is small, 
maybe you don't want an outside sales organization. Maybe it doesn't make sense. And it is a phone-based, you know, team like the one you described. <clears throat> but it, it's a, this is where, you know, getting somebody with experience to advise on, you know, what the appropriate metrics would be for a company at this stage and a market at this stage. And again, market and company stages don't always match. When I was at, uh, before Lockheed Martin acquired Industrial Defenders, the beginning of my industrial cybersecurity days, we were like trying to sell insurance to a 30-year smoker. What's the big deal? Not that, not that much bad had happened to, you know, to in the cyberspace that was publicly known, to your point about the companies not talking about it. But you got out there and, and uh, we had to find a compliance hook to have the company get some traction because the cybersecurity stuff, the best practice wasn't sticking to the wall. So in the early days, uh, it's about figuring out do you have the right fit from not just great product technology, but the market? you know, is open to it or not. In the case of industrial defender, it was early. So so part of how you, you measure and reward salespeople, you know, moves from MBO and activity-oriented stuff to bookings um, and repeat business, depending on that overlap of the, the, what you have available to sell and the customer, the you know, market need. Again, it's a tailored tailored program based on the situation. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a good thing for, for some of the founders to consider is, when you don't have clients yet to make it activity based. Uh, I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, this thing we talked about before of using coaches to help you, are you ready yet? I mean, uh, sometimes it's a numbers game. You know, in our space, we've got to find one in 10 or one in 15 that are ready to, to do something about industrial cyber today. Still, you know, it's the first light bulb in a dark room and it's new and, and you can find that in a, and I won't mention the company name, but it was a major well-known I consider them pharmaceutical, I guess, company that uh, had a security initiative presentation. It was 150 people in the room, the CIO and all his lieutenants up on stage, and every director got up and talked about their piece of cybersecurity. <clears throat> there was 110 slides for the game plan. In fact, the CIO said, I'm giving this talk to all of you. It was 150 of us. All you in the room, because I don't want to have to have my team give talks to suppliers 30 different times. So it was smart in the sense of here's our strategy. <clears throat> but from our vantage point, OT Cyber showed up on uh, slide 82 and 83 because they were not ready, right? They had so many other, you know, holes in the Swiss cheese from the security framework to resolve that that was going to take a while. So part of it in a, in a young company is you have something that is useful now, and that can be a numbers game because in our case, it's established enough for seeing a business that that company we check later, you know, six, they need six or nine months to, you know, circle back to. But in, in general, having the the having some customer or advisor or uh, coaching feedback is invaluable for young companies to know, do you have something that's useful and valuable and uh, are you positioning it right? Are you packaging it right? Is it you know, too much stuff or is it, does it need to be more focused? Does it need to have more you know, auxiliary functions to it? So from a technology point of view, what it is you're selling and then who you're selling it to and what is the messaging and what is the pricing, that's invaluable. Because that's the, the precursor. I mean, that's part of the business plan. And, and, and founders will have some idea of that. Obviously, if they're going to pitch and get funds. But where it, make, where it becomes actionable and relevant is, <clears throat> do you have some uh, substantiation for that in the real world? And okay. sales targets should follow from where you are as a company. And as we were talking about before, whether it's activity-based or whether it's you know bookings-based, it really depends on where you are. And then from a recruiting point of view, you've got to make sure people have done what you want them to do before. This is, uh, things things move too fast. Uh, there's too much public inf information, you know, web is, is ubiquitous. Figuring out uh, 
how to position something or for that matter, you know, customers rather figuring out who's out there and, and uh, what else can I do instead of spending money with you uh, or who else is selling what you are offering me is really important. So the part of that experience comment is, do you have people that have the flexibility, the drive, the spunk, the, the uh, ingenuity uh, and have done it before in a meaningful way? And to me, that's not one or two years, unless you're really looking for an entry-level inside salesperson in one or two years. Yeah. Talking about outside enterprise sales rep, he needs to have, he or she needs to have done this for 15 years by now. Excellent. Great. I want to start wrapping things up and I want to share something that, uh, that you shared with me uh, with our phone call during, uh, to prepare for this. Yep. Uh, and you gave me a great quote. Long after the price is forgotten, they will remember how you made them feel. Yep, exactly. Uh, and that's pretty basic stuff. I don't know if that originally goes back to somebody like Zig Ziglar or you know, uh, Dale Carnegie. But it's, and, I, and I'm sure if we Googled that, we'd figure out where the source of that is. But <laughs> it truly is, I think, important. Uh, for me personally, it's part of my own standard. I, I don't want to be seen as that SOB that, that came in and sold me stuff and twisted my arm. I, you know, I want uh, sometimes in, a, in your career, not everybody's like this, but for me personally, you think about your tombstone or how you're going to remember it after you hang up the spikes. Um, you know, what do they remember you as? And it's not just about a personal thing, but the, the, the company benefits. If, if you can make the client feel that they are a valued partner, that you're taking their input seriously, that, that you're putting their, their ideas on a roadmap, that you're being responsive. You know, the comment I made earlier that customer loyalty goes up after you solve a problem for a customer. It actually gets better, even though you've had a problem, which is a little counterintuitive. But if you really rise to the challenge and respond quickly, that's that. So long after the price uh, is forgotten, they're going to remember how you treated them and how you made them feel. And I think it's more expandable beyond just the sales cycle. It's an overall relationship cycle. And is this a company that has really valued my uh, gamble, in especially early stage company, and gone with you? Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a maxim that I've thought about. Uh, and again, maybe my style is not as hard nosed as some, uh, but I I tend to look at uh, I'm a little different, a bit a bit of a sales manager, but. I tend to look at the customer relationship as, as the ultimate bellwether. And, you know, if they were all at my funeral, what would they say? Yeah, and I think it also goes back to what you were saying earlier about how you want you want your customer, you don't want to be hard-nosed and, and just get the deal and then let them fall off. The, you know, they'll, yeah. they'll, be, they'll churn really quickly when they, when they have that feeling. They're very, going to be very sure. quick to go to your competition when the price is better. You want them to have that relationship with you and the company as well. That's how it is. That's how it really is in today's world because, you know, there was a time when you could bluff people or strong arm into buying, but the web has flattened the playing field so much. Yeah. You you know, you could know in, ten, in three minutes what else is out there. So even if you, th- you came to somebody with something that uh, they thought was exclusive to you, they're going to check you out. So uh, the other technology equalizer is that people have pretty much unlimited access to information. Uh, and ratings and all kinds of things. So it's it's really the customer focus. It's a customer driven world. It used to be a supplier driven years ago. It's customer driven, and you have to, I believe, operate that way. Absolutely, Jim. Uh, appreciate your time today. How can people reach out to you? Uh, my personal email is jim at blaschke dot org. Uh, my company is a business development company. I can help and advise young companies. Uh, my tagline is business development for developing business. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, available. My uh, cell phone number is 508 in the U.S. plus one five zero eight three three zero three seven six three. 
Great. And I'll put a link also into uh, for your LinkedIn profile in the show notes for everybody to want to just click and then send you a message via there as well. Sure. That'd be appreciated. Terrific, Jim. Thank you very much. Um, me too. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io. Jim, let's finish things off with the final five. What is your favorite sales or leadership book? Ah, Hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. Yeah. Who, who um, I should know the name of the author. Um, Well-known uh, sales coach. Uh, if you want to ask, I can look and then I can ask, you, can ask you the question. Again. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. no, hope, hope is not a strategy because it has to do with the complex sale and the seeing around a corner and the professional paranoia that I espouse that it's really, really important. You can't expect something to happen. You have to really, especially in young companies, uh, may ensure that it happens. Absolutely. You can't always make it happen because there's a fallacy sometimes in founders that think, you know, I can get customers to buy on my timetable and to my, on my terms. No. Again, the web has leveled the playing field and there's too much information. It's too easy to understand how you stack up against other people. So, frankly, making the customer feel that you're treating them fairly and, and honorably and you're going to meet their needs and solve their problems. To me, today, that is the most important aspect. Absolutely. And being paranoid. Is, professional. <laughs> yeah. Is there someone that you follow or read for uh, sales and leadership ideas? Um, not as much, but uh, having been in five startups, I haven't had as much time to uh, to uh, read. Uh, I have a lot of regard for, uh, you know, I actually, I, I, I look at uh, disruptors and visionaries in different industries for inspiration. So I'm a fan of uh, Elon Musk. I'm a fan of Jeff Bezos. It's always a big... Uh, Steve Jobs and, and now Tim Cook uh, fan and of course I'm shareholder um, on uh, on those companies as well and have uh, ridden the wave but uh, I just I, I think of more uh, you know what industries and companies are doing and there are obviously great uh, VPs of sales and I've had great influences over my career and, and individuals here and there that I work for but from a, as I've grown in my career I look at you know industry leaders and how they are uh, are changing the face of things and and being disruptive in a customer beneficial way, you know, as opposed yeah. to being out the old IBM heart heavy handed way. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm dating myself. So, so you're saying that you don't have a lot of time anymore to, to read and follow as much as you want to. That leads me to my next question is, are you available 24 uh, seven? In my current role, generally uh, 16, seven, you know, I, 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 my attitude is if, if this disturbs you, it's your own fault. Right. So yes. I know how to put it on do not disturb. But no, I'm I'm uh, phone's not that far away uh, on the after hours. Uh, and I'm generally responsive within, you know, if it's off, if it's off hours or weekends within a few hours. But 24-7 uh, has been an extreme. And I think balance is an important thing just from the vantage point of, of uh, not just your own uh, personal well-being and, and mental health is a little bit done, but, you know, your own personal well-being, but to also to be uh, relaxed enough and uh present enough in situations where you're not frazzled. If you completely are are multitasking all the time, I don't think you've got the reflection and the, and the ability to, 
do that. And so trying to get decent night's sleep most nights is important. I mean, there's, there's nights when you're, especially traveling can be pretty all out. Uh, I think I was on 113 flight segments this year. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, the work uh, requires dedication and, and a lot of that um, and being available to do what it takes, but you also have to have some kind of personal balance and family is important and you don't want to have to show your ID when you come home. <laughs> Absolutely. What is your favorite tool used for sales? The tool? Salesforce.com. Um, Salesforce. Yeah, because, I mean, and spreadsheets quite a bit, too, because some things that you need to experiment with, I mean, choice is empowering. So when you have a customer that uh, you're talking to and they're trying to help them scope out, they say, well, how much does it cost? Well, I never give them one answer. You want to give them some options, you know, small, medium, large, or let's say you need this or need that. And in our space, because it's new, you know, one of the classic ways to measure consumption is how many assets are you monitoring. But they don't know, and they don't want to be given a homework assignment to go count how many devices are out in a plant, right? So you just swag it to the nearest 100, and that's a, you know, that can be a 20% margin of error. That's okay. I think you need to make it easy for customers. So spreadsheets in terms of saying, how about let's do small, medium, large, and we can figure out how many of those you have. And here's a price for small, medium, and large. And you tell me how many of these you'd like to do. We just did this for a major university. Um, and that and that gives them a sense of, yeah, I can I can control my destiny and I can spend how much I want to, when I want to. All that's really important. So, but Salesforce, uh, you know, having a, a single source of truth, having a, a place where everyone can reference you know, proposal, at least the final proposal, not necessarily all the iterations, but final proposal, customer contract information. It came from the CRM, you know, approach, but it's become a much broader repository. Lots of things you can do in there now with forecasting and, you know, ticket tracking, you know, customer uh, support issues and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'd say the three th three important things are spreadsheets, Salesforce.com, and a shared drive. Uh, putting you know information up where everyone can can get to it, so that all the iterations, for example, Salesforce, you can't keep all the copies of things. Just the final copy should be there, but having a drive where you can see the history and the variations on presentations that you've used and so on. So, you know, the other ancillary office tools, PowerPoint, Word, are really important to to be able to do those professionally. Terrific. Last question: What one piece of advice do you have for all the founders and sales leaders out there? There are lots of things that, that you could say here, I guess, Adam, but um, if I were to nut it down to one, I'd say, as we described before, uh, engage with your network, uh, verify that your great idea has got some legs, uh, verify that your great idea has got some legs now, you know, as opposed to, um, you know, somewhere down the road, get a sense of market fit and timing um, and value that, uh, you know, it, it brings. Uh, and engage with those coaches we talked about before so that, that uh, and it's a very non-threatening thing to do, uh, figure out who your network, who's in your network of networks, you know, the people that you know and, and their networks, and understand the value prop and the uh, positioning, the content, uh, the timing, and the pricing, because you could have a great idea and be way out in front of the market. My experience at Industrial Fender was, again, insurance to a 30-year smoker was way too early. Um, you know, we've learned a lot and found a way to be successful and sold the company and all that, but it took a lot longer than, than it might have if, if the timing was a better fit. So, uh, yeah, I think the, my piece of advice is just uh, be larger than life in the sense of, of expanding your, your, your knowledge base and your access uh, and get good customer feedback. So it's one thing, some companies make a big deal about uh, the, the, the uh, 
you know, the, the strength of their advisory board and how they have these movers and shakers and influencers. That's nice. But again, that's, that's kind of old school about who can you influence and who can you twist arms and who can you, you know, take to lunch and, and tell them that they really ought to look at your company. I and mean, that's useful from a, a barroom or backroom kind of slugfest point of view. To me, the better customer fit, the more enduring model is not how many people can you browbeat in, you know, through senior level contacts into buying your, your, your product or service, but about, you know, what is your network able to tell you about the value because of long-term value is going to be and how you serve customers and grow with customers and expand, you know, land, expand and upsell in those, in those accounts. So it's, I would say the number one thing is think about how you can get tangible feedback and then over time, stay very close to your accounts, make them make sure they're happy. Excellent. Jim, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure, Adam. My pleasure. Thank you.